It always happens. It's very weird. It always happens after you've interviewed them, when you know it's ready to go and you're going back to them and you're saying, is this fine? And and you quote back what they said and they said, that's not what I said. And you say, yes, it is. Hear it. it all that stuff. That's seasoned biographer Jacqueline Kent being forthright about the challenge of interviewing a subject's relatives. It's one of the most common perils of the genre, as we'll hear later. Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Jacqueline Kent's most recent biography is of social reformer Vida Goldstein. Vida was born in 1869 and died in 1949. In 1903, she became the first woman in the Western world to stand for a national parliament. Vida played a central role in the suffragette movement in the UK, as well as in Australia. She was an activist on everything from workers' rights to divorce and a passionate campaigner for peace during wartime. When she came to Vida, Jacqueline Kent already had the lives of musician Hepzibah Menuhin, editor Beatrice Davis and Prime Minister Julia Gillard under her belt. We met at her Sydney home to talk about her experiences of difficult relatives and cultural gatekeepers. You are a very seasoned biographer, so I want to know, is there a pattern? Does a biography choose you? Do you choose it? I think, for me anyway, uh, I know some people write biographies in the way of thinking that no one's done anything on this and I'll do it as a kind of huge uh, journalistic project, if you like, in that sense. If it's going to work for me, it's got to have some kind of personal connection because all the biographies I've done have. The first one, Beatrice Davis, was it was about a book editor. I work as a book editor. The second one, Hepzibah Menuhin, was actually really about my father because he... And my family had a, have a very big thing about precocious intelligence. With Julia Gillard, that's the only one that's been suggested to me as a journalistic thing, really. I mean, I'd worked with Graham Richardson. I'd worked on his book. I knew, I knew my way around the ALP a bit insofar as anybody who is not of the blood actually does. So I knew a little bit about – I knew my way around a little bit – and I lived in Adelaide and I grew up there, so I knew it. So, I mean, you could find connections for that sort of thing very easily. And with Vida, with a memoir, because there was a memoir in between, which um, was, you know, just pure me. <laughs> and after that, the Vida thing, it was the subject was suggested to me by many, many years ago in the days of the old coming out show, which some people may remember, on the ABC, which is when feminism, it was about the late 70s, early 80s, long time ago. And I had a friend who'd done a um, thesis about Australian women suffragettes. I just said I didn't know there were any, and the name Vida came up there. She died a couple of years ago, so the book's dedicated to her. But I learned a lot about Vida and that through her, so that was the personal connection there. And would you say that admiration is useful or a hindrance when you're writing a biography? Because it seems to me that certainly I've read your Julia Gillard, I've read your Beatrice Davis, and I think there is admiration in both of those. And there certainly is, I think, for Vida as well. 
I think it helps. It's not, it's like admiration for anybody in your life. I mean, it's not sort of 24-7 consistent. It can't be. But I think you start off because you're interested and you like them. I'd say liking as much as admiration because, I mean, you know, there are plenty of people I admire, but that can be a bit chilly. <laughs> the ad- admiration can be, you know, kind of gosh. Um, I think you have to like them. You may not always like them all the way through the book. In fact, there were in all three of the books you've mentioned, there were places where I thought, oh, for goodness sake, what are you doing this for? And give that's me, hard. Give me an example of a moment like that. Well, the really most obvious ones with Hepzibah Menuhin, the problem I had with her was that she walked out on her husband and two kids. There's a problem everybody has with Hepzibah Menuhin. And the way she justified it was so self-righteous and so high-minded. I wanted to shake her. I really did. And I thought, well, the only way, how am I going to deal with this? The only way I can do it is just to say I wanted to shake her. (laughs) I didn't like her much after that, to tell you the truth. And I certainly hated the man she married after she walked out on. Everybody did, (laughs) except his daughter, who was a problem. But that's another story. Anyway, uh, there was that. And with Gillard, it was the thing that really annoyed me about her was the whole refugee thing. And again, that is something that many, many people have, have mentioned. And the way I dealt with that was just to say what she said which was the tinkling laugh and the just sort of, oh, good heavens, well, we had to do that because of John Howard. And I mean, I know why they had to do it. I know why Sheen Beasley had to look as if they swung in behind it. But it's done great damage to the Labor Party, and I think it's still there. But now that you've written biographies of people who are living and people who are not living, do you find that there is greater freedom in writing the life of someone who's not going to read it and judge it for themselves and have all their friends pile on, etc.? Unquestionably. The only problem with that is they have relatives, and that can be a problem too. I what, a, even the dead, you mean, have even relatives? The, well, you know, Hepzibah certainly mm. did. I fell very badly foul of two of her. She had, how many children did she have? She had she had two children of her own, three children of her own, and one stepdaughter. And the two, the two women were difficult. It's because, you know, it's the keeper, it's the Ian Hamilton keeper of the flame thing. You know, it is, it's a... Uh, I want you to um, make her the person that I know that I wanted her to be. It always happens. It's very weird. It always happens after you've interviewed them, when you know it's ready to go and you're going back to them and you're saying, is this fine? And and you quote back what they said and they said, that's not what I said. And you say, yes, it is. Here it is. All that stuff. But quite often it's a huge difference between talking to someone as the way we're talking now and seeing that it's going to be in solid print in a book that other people will read. That reference that Jackie made just then to Ian Hamilton, he's a highly respected British literary critic and author who wrote a book called Keepers of the Flame on literary estates and the rise of biography, which covers the wills and wishes of writers and the role of their executors from Shakespeare to Sylvia Plath. 
So when you fell foul of those two daughters, I just want to dwell on this for a moment because this mm. is the really juicy stuff that, you know, people aren't aware of often. How do you navigate that when they say, we didn't say that, and you can say, well, I've got it on tape, yes, you did, mm. then what? Well, you just have to say, you've got it on tape, yes, you did. And, and I'm not taking it out now. And I'm not taking it out now. I may change a few things. There's one of the daughters, actually the stepdaughter, I will mention no names, but it's Eva Cox. (laughs) She actually was difficult because she just said, well, you haven't got my father right at all. And I said, well, I have written down everything you told me and everything everybody. No, no, no. There's all this stuff. And she gave me some quite useful stuff about what she considered his intellectual background and his intellectual, the fabric, the intellectual fabric of the work he was doing was. And that was fine. I was happy with that. Um, she didn't like the book. She never liked the book. She's gone around saying she doesn't like the book. She was very protective of Hepzibah's youngest daughter, who really was very helpful until she stopped being helpful. Um, she's the one who lives in the United States. And when the book came out, she wrote me a letter, which I have got on my computer in a lead-lined box. <laughs> it's just, it's, yeah, I just kept it for, you know, reasons. You do. Um saying that I I was a betrayer. All the things that people say about biographers, you're a betrayer, you're, you know, you're a leech. You sort of, I mean, it really was quite heavy stuff. And I said, right, well, the book's out there. Can you give me specific examples? Please tell me what I have done and why and nothing. And I thought, okay, well, she's not going to sue me, so fine. Is there a mechanism whereby when you embark on a project, you can look at something which is like a database to see if anybody else is doing it? Or is the world of biography so secretive that in fact, the whole point is that nobody knows what anybody else is doing? That's my experience, actually. Nobody knows halfway through. I mean, I've had projects that I was, I did a year's research on, and then I discovered somebody had done a biography of the person. Oh, my God. That was great. That was the worst one. Who was it? Ellen Kelly. Ellen Kelly being Ned mother Kelly's of, mother. Yeah. yeah. And the thing about her is, of course, everything is written about Gerildery and everything, but the thing about her that's never been written about, she spent three years in prison. I want to know what that was like in 1880. And that's what I was looking at. And what would it be like? And, and she was in prison for a very long time by standards. I mean, most women who went to prison then kind of were in for prostitution for three months or foul language for two weeks or something like that. But she was in for three years. Why? And I wanted to, and I was starting to work, I was working on that. Then I got an email from the publisher, Ben Ball, from Penguin, headed bugger. <laughs> and it was the day that it was uh, Grantly Keezer, who's a guy from HarperCollins, was publishing, it was it was one of their this is what's coming out next month things and I thought, oh, there goes a year that's alright. Do you have a system do you, for example, always start with the same thing, i.e. with a timeline? Yes, okay. I do Okay. Or a structure a structure of some sort, even if it's not um, actually a time but a timeline, yeah, always really useful. 
And is one of the benefits, um, Jackie, of the timeline that it shows you where you need to do the most work on something that you don't know much about? Absolutely. Yes, that's very true. Yeah. And so in your case, when you'd done your timeline for VIDA, what was apparent to you in that timeline as, oh, I'm going to have to do a lot of work there? Well, it's the, the moment she stopped standing for Parliament, really. Basically... World War One, World War One to the end of her life, or but really more, um, more precisely, about nineteen nineteen to nineteen forty nine. The last twenty years of her life, nothing. I could find absolutely nothing of any value there, and I thought, <sighs> let's just talk about what there was by way of a concrete archive that you could really draw on for that book for Vida for Vida. Right. Well, the fact was that she gave her. Archive. She left all her papers to the um, Millicent Fawcett Library, which is part of the London School of Economics. And I thought, oh, my God, am I going to have to go to London? This is before the whole COVID thing happened. I thought, oh. I mean, you know what it's like. You sort of go there. You could only afford to stay there about two weeks, and it takes you about one and a half weeks to find your way around, and then you've got to find out where to stay, and there are people you want to see, and all that stuff. So... That was hard. However, enter Tom Roberts. Tom Roberts, who, not the painter, but a guy who actually wrote a very well-received biography of Keith Murdoch, which was published by um, University of Queensland Press. It was called Before Rupert, and it won the National Biography Award a couple of years ago. And it's good. I worked on it with him. I was the editor, and we became mates. It was good. We had a, you know, we had a really good relationship. He's based in England. And I said, if I give you some money, so what he did, he went there and he photographed every page of her and sent it to me via Dropbox. Oh, it was wonderful. She actually had very little personal writing. She wrote to Miles Franklin a bit and she kept copies of those letters. Um, (laughs) There is an absolutely wonderful quote from Louis Menand, which I quote all the time. Um, He is a writer for The New Yorker and he wrote something once about five or six years ago. He said something about how dependent we are on the written word when when you're writing this sort of thing, when you're doing biography. And he said, it's like you're clinging to the wreckage and what happens is that you find all the bits that have drifted to the surface while the great edifice of the past sinks slowly out of sight. And you do feel like that sometimes, yeah. And you've got to remember that what you've got is never the whole story. But you can actually justify that to yourself by saying nothing is ever the whole story, ever, 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 ever. Yeah. And with Vida, I mean, the challenge for me in terms of this book is her life is her public life. It's what she achieves. It's where she goes. She's a formidable traveller. She's a brilliant campaigner. We'll talk about that in a moment. In terms of personal relationships, obviously, she was very affected by what had happened um, in her family, Mm. where there was violence and madness and, you know, marriage did not recommend Mm. itself to her. and, And she kind of... You get the sense that as an adolescent, she was sensitive and she was noticing things and deciding what was and wasn't for her. But did you wish that there were some love letters? Yes, I did. Amy! Of course you Of course I did. Yes. I would have loved to find some. But on the other hand, 
and it's very hard to quantify this also. The photographs of Vida, there were, you know you see photographs of women who are sexual. Vida never came across to me in any photograph I've ever seen of her, and of course you have to make provision for the fact that photographs took forever to do and, you know, they weren't sort of selfies were not in and all that sort of thing. But I never felt that she was a particularly sexual woman. And I have a feeling, and I don't, I think I might be right about this. I don't know whether I am or not. But I don't think there was um, a pent up torrent of sexual feeling. I don't think she was that sort of woman. I think all her, it's sub- sublimation. I know, I know, but you know, it's, it's. No, no, I'm just rolling mm. my eyes. I mean, for the listener, I'm just rolling my eyes because what I'm wondering there, Jackie, is she may not have had feelings for other people, but I wonder whether other people had feelings they for did. her. They did. I think they did. I think mm. I know at least two men who probably, very likely did. One is um, John Monash, who uh, thought he would fix his interest. I love that phrase, fix his interest with her. And she more or less told him to get lost because she thought he was a pompous prat, which he probably was. I mean, for goodness sake, he was only a kid. And so, but then they became friends. I think she was much happier with men as friends than men as lovers or confidants. And the other one, I think, was the man who became her brother-in-law, who was um, Henry Hyde Champion, who married her sister, Elsie. And I don't know, I'd really wish that there'd been... I mean, he was somebody who... It probably wouldn't have worked as a marriage because he was he was an energetic person. He was very... He was one of these people who could be somebody's motor but not somebody's companion. He would be... He was somebody who sort of had great ideas. You go ahead and do it, you know. But it's interesting that you mentioned the men there because that's not where I was going at all. Oh, I was thinking that perhaps the people who had feelings for her that she may not have reciprocated oh, were Cecilia. actually women. Cecilia John is the one that comes up. I've been caned. Um, I forget where it was. Somebody caned me at one point for saying that that Cecilia John identified as gay. <sighs> and... I felt like writing back and saying, what do you say when someone decides that the person she wants to be buried next to is her favourite woman companion? I mean, come on. Sorry mm. for being prurient, but I just no, have no, to continue no. this line of thought to no, its, it's logical, no, it's what I thought about a lot, yes. inevitable conclusion. Do you then think that Vida died a virgin? I think she probably did. I thought about that. I did think about that too. I think... I think that she probably, according to the meaning of the act, yes, I think she probably did Um, because she was very, very strong about – she was not relaxed about male sexuality at all or, you know, she really wasn't. I mean, there's a whole thing about, you know, the – the passions and desires of men and how women suffer because of them. And she preached abstinence. And she preached abstinence and, of course, the – The Christian science thing was part of that as well. I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about her that I really like about her is her quick-thinking wit and her ability, for example, to deal with hecklers. My favourite line Mm. is the line in the book where someone, some heckler from a crowd, is shouting at her, don't you wish you were a man? And she shouts back, don't you wish you were? 
I mean, to think on your feet like that and to have that kind of comeback. Yes, she was brilliant. And, and that's, that's my favourite thing about her as well, actually. The fact that she was so, so good. She was that. ballsy. Oh, she really was. And not only that, but she was and fast on her feet. I like the bit where she said, well, are there any questions in the audience? And no one had any. She said, well, let me ask you some. <laughs> And I thought that was brilliant. Let's go back to where she gets her activism from, because it's quite clear in your book that she gets her social conscience from her mother, and her mother is a fantastic character. Oh, she's fabulous. I loved Isabella, yes. I think she's worth a book on her own, really. I think she's um, she's a very, very interesting woman, that. And I think she's the most interesting person in her family, because from what I can gather from what everybody from what I've read, I mean, most of the others were kind of quite content to live rich, ordinary lives, really, in, in central or western Victoria. But Isabella wanted something different for herself. Yes. yes. And so she was the one who kind of helped Vida to see injustice and to see what they could and should do to remedy it. That's right. I think and right from an early age, I think Vida was interested in that stuff, even when she was at school and she went around with her mother sort of helping people in, in the slums and stuff. Yes. And, I mean, who thinks of starting a hospital? I know. I love that story. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She, um, Isabella was, and she was a very strong Christian scientist too, but she wasn't going to let that get in the way of medical science which I think is rather nice actually. Just fill us in a little bit on Christian science for those of us that don't know too much about it what the sort of precepts and principles and values are. Okay well it was set up at the end of the 19th century I can't think of the date it's probably in the book by um, Mary Baker Eddy and she decided she was going to set up a religion that did not have hierarchies and where everybody was equal so no father son and holy ghost none of that stuff and no priests and no angels or anything like that. So much like the Quakers. Very much like the very much like the Quakers, particularly in in the sense that everybody was equal, everybody could speak, everybody could say what they wanted to. Um and all you had to do really was recognize that everybody was equal. There's a lot of stuff in um science and health which is Mary Baker Eddy's book which I do not recommend. It's huge. It's enormous. But there's a lot of stuff about the world soul and it's kind of contemporary in the sense that, I mean, look at James Lovelock and Gaia. I mean, you've got the, you know, the planet is an entity, the planet exists, the planet has its own imperatives. And this is what she thought, of, this is what Mary Baker Eddy thought about the world. You know, the, there was a world soul. I don't ask me to explain because I don't think I would go. No, it's but the point. But it's not unlike the hippie thing about like the universe, man. You know, it's. Um, but that's what she believed, and the reason that I think Vida and her mother became so enamoured of it was because of the lack of hierarchy. Women were equal to men, and there was no God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost stuff. There was no no old man in a white or a white beard sort of telling you what to do. And in terms of health, I mean, for example, when you're starting a hospital, was there anything about Christian science and health which would have been contradicted by starting a hospital? It's very interesting, that, isn't it? I, wor I worried about that quite a lot 
because if you think that the good body will heal itself, which is part of it's not exactly, was it Jehovah's Witness? I think it's Jehovah's Witness. Anyway, but the belief that the good body would heal itself, there is a corollary. There is a sort of a proviso in that, really, which is the good body will heal itself if you believe strongly enough. Well, if you've got to admit defeat because you've got cancer, that's when you go to the medicos, you know, and it may make you feel bad about yourself and your Christian science practice, but, hey, you're going to get better. <laughs> so, no, I think there was – there's an implicit contradiction in it. Of course there is. But also the point was that there were women who were really beginning the the quest to become – equally valued as medical practitioners. So there was the feminist angle of that, I think, overrode the Christian science angle of it, really. Uh, Vida was a writer. Mm -hmm. She was a good writer. And she started not just one, but in fact, I think a couple of newspapers. That's right. So tell us a little bit about Vida as a publisher and editor. They're actually very good to read. There's the Australian Women's Sphere and the Woman, and the woman Voter are the two papers that she that she set up. And the beautiful thing about them is they're actually very readable now. They really are. They, you can get – well, in fact, I think they're online, but you can get them from any library, really. But her whole thing was, this is what we need to do. This is what you need to know in order to be a fully functional voting citizen. So it was – it was partly her papers were partly instruction manuals, very clearly expressed and with a lot of self deprecating humour as well, a sort of a bit of I know this is difficult and I know the kids are going to start crying, but bear with me. That kind of not quite as thing but that was the idea. With an understanding of the pressures that women were under. So that was one part of it. The other part of it was okay, how are we going in the rest of the world on this stuff? So she had bulletins from Sweden and from, you know, all sorts of places. Just she had she had an enormous number of correspondence, or she read a lot of of newspapers and things. And anything to do with the status of women elsewhere in the world was fine. The other thing that she went on about was women and the law, and particularly as it affected women's relationships with men. That's what the book. That's what it was supposed to be as it, as it started. And I think she thought she didn't give she didn't give them enough candy. Actually, she didn't um, give enough sort of treats. Filling. Treats. So treats. you mean there there wasn't much room in in these publications for anything light or frivolous? Not a lot. She decided she wasn't going to do that. I mean, there were no knitting patterns or recipes for the busy housewife. None of that stuff. What she did do though was she put in poems, and she put in short stories. I think it's really fascinating that she stood for Parliament as an independent several times, mm. never got elected. Now, do you think that it was uh, as much because she was an independent as because she was a woman? I think so. I think that's that's true. That um, I have a slight quarrel with um, Academe here, one of several, but this one is about well, of course she never got in she, because she was an independent and she would have, she joined the Labour Party. Yeah, well, I didn't actually see that the Labour Party was actually holding, you know, putting up its hand to get her in there. And in fact, although Labour women supported her a couple of times, the Labour Party never did because the Labour Party was 
very mis- misogynist as all hell. And even the, the conservatives, if you're a nice lady like Janet Lady Clark, they would let you in because you could look after the ladies and made sure they had the right, but they, you know, the right ideas. Let's <laughs> talk now a little bit about the Pankhursts because I'm wondering what you discovered about the Pankhursts in terms of the way Vida gets caught up in their world and in their cause and is co-opted by them. She started out being very, very supportive of them because even though they were, by the standards of the day, they were urban terrorists. But her view was, well, we got the vote without any bloodshed at all. I mean, we worked, but she felt it was so important that her British sisters were not having the same benefits. And so she decided to do what she could to help. Um, and she became quite friendly when she went over there with um, Sylvia Christabel and Emily and also with Adela when Adela came out here. The whole thing soured in the end, mostly because she did not agree with the fact the, that Mrs Pankhurst and Christabel, Christabel and, and um, Sylvia decided they weren't going to keep on asking for the vote. They were going to swing behind Britain in the war and support the war effort. Vida could not understand why you weren't a pacifist as well as being a suffragette. She just never got it. And so I think she broke she broke ranks with them then. Adela, who agreed with her, came out here. She's an interesting woman. And helped her very much in her anti-war things. But then Adela kind of went equally to the right. And, you know, having joined the Communist Party, she then decided she's somebody looking for a cause. I think she just needed to glom onto that. And so she so that she fractured her relationship with Adela as well. So they just weren't compatible. They really weren't. And Vida was, I think, actually a lot tougher. I mean, I've, I kind of came out of this thinking the Pankhursts were... You know, not exactly fake, but there are a lot of women who suffered in England, but the Pankhurst never did, really. I think one of the things that I admire most about Vida is how principled she is in her pacifism. She mm. loses so many people on that issue. She oh, has yes. to stand alone and be vilified and be attacked on that more than any other thing. She must have known that it would have put the any thought of her going into Parliament, not only in abeyance, but cancelled forever. And she, you know... Do you think she was ever physically threatened? I know she was obviously attacked for her views, but do you think that she was ever in real physical danger? I am not sure, because when you look at the descriptions of the rallies that she she and her um, supporters ran... The tone of so much of that is kind of jocular from the men's point of view, you know, silly old ladies doing this and how dare they. So the kind of aggression that they seemed to attract was mockery rather than 
But the hostility, there's obviously hostility in there. Of course there is. Now, you said something tantalising earlier on in our conversation about gatekeepers. And we were talking about estates and about how people can be very obstructive and difficult. What's your take as a very experienced um, biographer on this idea of gatekeepers? What is it that irks you about the idea of a gatekeeper? It depends how it's expressed. I've had two experiences with two lots of gatekeepers. One was the journalists when I was working on um, Julia Gillard. When the book was published, the reviewers, I had several reviews of that book from journalists who said, oh, we know all this stuff. Why has she written it? Who is this woman anyway? Interestingly enough, a friend of mine's Edna Carew. I don't know whether you know Ed. She had exactly the same experience with her biographies of Keating. She put stuff in those biographies that nobody else had known, and I put in things that no one had written about. And, of course, what happens? The journalists put those in the review and said, oh, we all knew this anyway. So that's that was the bad that was one way of looking and at it. And do you think that was a gatekeeper thing where it was very tribal and journalists were saying, well, there's this Jackie Canton, she's a literary That's writer, right. and she's not one of us, she wasn't in the That's press it. gallery, so we're going to rubbish her. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think there was an element of that. Is also, there was also one particular writer, Christine, Chris Wallace, who went further than that and, in fact, wrote a review in The Monthly which rubbished the book completely and she was writing a book of her own about Gillard. She was writing a tell-all thing. And she mentioned it, she mentioned it, but she did not make any point about it. But And the editor of The Monthly should not have chosen her as the... Because of the conflict of oh, interest. Oh, God, yes, yeah. yeah. And then lots of people fussed. And the book was never published, oddly enough. It was going to be published by Alan and Unwin. And it never saw the light of day. And I've often wondered why. And I think it's because of, well, my book got out first, really. Mm. And that was, I was going to be punished for that. But to be fair, I was expecting gatekeeper problems on both those books. On both? On both Julia Gillard and Vida. I expected gatekeeper hassles. What kind with Vida? Academics saying she didn't write about this and she didn't write about that. As you can hear, biography is a contested space, littered with rivalries and competing versions and often disputed interpretations, which is what makes it such a dynamic form. Jacqueline Kent is a veteran of the genre, and nothing she's encountered so far has put her off having another go. What's refreshing about Jacqueline is her unpretentious approach to her work. She just rolls up her sleeves and gets on with it, but I think she's got a great instinct for picking her subject. Not only that, but she knows the value of a telling detail. For example, with Vida, she tells us that she was a compelling and confident public speaker and very quick-witted when it came to responding to hecklers, but that she was terrified of mice being let loose on a stage. I love that, because it makes her vulnerable and relatable as well as fierce. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on your favourite platform and tell others about us. The show is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Mm-hmm.